0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. For more
1: than anything, God love admiration. You saying God is
0: vain? No. No, no, not vain. Just wanting to share a good thing. I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field and don't notice it. Are well, you saying it just wanna be loved like I say in the Bible?
1: Yeah, Celie. Everything wanna be loved. Us sing and dance and holler.
0: Just trying to be loved.
1: Welcome back to Adaptation Nation. It's a podcast where we read the thing, watch the thing, then talk about the thing. Today, we are talking about The Color Purple Purple by Alice Walker and the film directed by Steven Spielberg uh, on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of the publication of The Color Purple. Um, and also, it's in been the news of late as we're gearing up to have another film adaptation, this time bridging off of, taking inspiration from, or, or maybe more just a film adaptation of the musical that was that's based on The Color Purple called The Color Purple. Um, and I think we can talk about why it's a interesting moment for this to happen in, in that particular format and what's left on the tree of The Color Purple for future adaptations, including this one. Join me today, Sharifa Williams. Um, director of content here at Book Riot, and we were talking before we started recording, there is a lot here. This is the most, (laughs) the most about everything, and some of it is the work itself, some of it is Alice Walker, some of it is the movie, some of it where this all happens in time and how we're looking back on it now. So Sharifa, thanks for for joining me. I guess let's start here. When you agreed to do this, what was at that moment your relationship to The Color Purple? Um, When you agreed to. When you agreed or you signed up to say, I'd be willing to talk about this one, what was your relationship to The Color Purple at that moment?
0: I had very vague recollections of the 1985 adaptation from watching it when I was very young. And. I had never had the opportunity to read the book, which sounds shocking, perhaps, because it feels Mm -hmm. like one of those books everybody reads, usually in school, and that just wasn't my story. I I never got the opportunity to read it. So when I saw it there, not even realizing at the time that it was uh, the 40th anniversary was coming Mm -hmm. up, I was just like, this is my opportunity to finally read one of those books that I have always felt a little bit weird about not having read. (laughs) right? And so now I can do it and now I can like actually remember what the adaptation was about because I did have some, the few memories of the adaptation I had were striking memories and I couldn't remember if they were Mm. just living in my head or if they actually happened in the movie. So that's why I signed up for this.
1: And what were, do, can you can you say what were the striking memories? Like what was your mental model of the movie even coming into reading the book?
0: There were very visual. So I didn't remember a lot of the details of the actual story. Mm-hmm. I remembered uh, Whoopi Goldberg's performance and Oprah's performance as well. Those two really stood out in my memory. But a lot of what I remembered about The Color Purple was, of course, that it was a a book with high trauma, uh, lots of violence and terrible things happening. And also just I had very specific, vivid images of scenes from the movie. And that's when I Hmm. was like, did I make this up? Because it was striking and I didn't know if it actually fit with the story. But now that I've watched it again, I realized that I understand now why I thought that they were like, in my head, I had imagined these scenes, but actually they were in the movie itself. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's important. Um, and you have, I see in the notes here, you watched it when you're between 8 and 11 and probably on VHS and television. I think this is important for people to remember. I, this is me coming off, also having read The 90s by Chuck Klosterman recently. So I was just thinking about the structure of how we watched movies in the late 80s and early night, really yeah. into the late 90s right Sharifa you're younger than I am but not, not by so much that yeah. you probably experienced was different than mine was that I don't remember this being this movie ever playing on cable in my in my mind and I and I think I understand why right um for a lot of reasons like how much you'd have to edit out it's not like a great hang of a movie frankly you're not going to rewatch it a whole bunch of times I don't think I think probably racism is part of it as well, but there's so Mm -hmm. much of it that they would just have to edit out to play on TNT in 1994 or something like that. So probably on VHS, and it was hard to watch VHS. You had to rent it, and you wouldn't watch it over and over again. So a lot of these movies, from this era especially, I would say, unless my family owned them or I got a copy that we used a double tape player somewhere else to get one, like Empire Strikes Back or Back to the Future, or something like that that kids watched a bunch of times, Mm -hmm. you just wouldn't see this, and especially this new this relatively new designation of PG thirteen was an eighties concoction of somewhere between PG and R, and it's a weird designation, right? Um, my parents were fairly strict about what we watched, uh, so I wasn't watching this till much later. I think I didn't watch this till after I'd read the book in college, so in the mm. late nineties uh, for me. So my, my I didn't have the childhood memory of it as well. But as a black girl, I can only imagine this was a remarkable thing to encounter, right? You didn't have a lot of these. I mean, you didn't have a lot of these things to see. And in the culture, we had roots, right? We had roots, the movie, the the film and the book in 1977 and in The Color Purple and the depictions of like TV, movies, film, primarily about black people. This was kind of it. I can't really think of anything else in the prestige culture uh culture landscape.
0: Yeah, this was very striking. I mean, in my family it was definitely there was definitely an effort to have us watch certain things like Roots for instance. We were we had mm. to sit down and watch when we were very young and I didn't understand a lot of it at that time, but <laughs> and the color purple was obviously the same. I didn't really understand a lot of it, but my parents were generally like from in my childhood they weren't very restrictive about Mm. what we watched um i mean we watched this like most of the spike lee movies in the theater yeah when i was a kid and they would just like have me cover my (laughs) eyes for certain parts (laughs) (laughs) amazing so it was to to me watching the color purple was part of that sort of like education the education part Mm -hmm. of like Uh, growing up was very much happened around the TV. That was how we did Mm. it. And so it doesn't surprise me that that's how I came about um, just like exploring and seeing for the first time The Color Purple. It wasn't Mm. through a book, even though I was very bookish. But yeah, it was like seeing it now. I, I wish I could remember more about my thinking back then when I watched it because I mean, there's a lot that's glossed over um, in the adaptation, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But there are some elements there that, you know, are very specific and um, inform, would inform a a black girl in a certain way about what life was like and to kind of think about how life is today. Um, And I just don't think Mm -hmm. I had the capacity at that time to really... Come up with a lot of obviously um, sophisticated, nuanced ideas. Well, you're nine years old, but yeah.
1: You can give yourself a break. I think.
0: Yeah, exactly. But I'm sure it impacted me in that, like, especially because I remember Whoopi Goldberg as Celie and the character of Celie so well. Yeah. Like, I just remember having a very visceral reaction to Celie as a character. Um, mm. Yeah,
1: yeah. That that makes total sense. And I think, frankly, for the culture it is maybe not too far off your own um, mental, your your mental index card of the movie, The Color Purple. It's kind of been, it feels hazy, but also there's, there's some weight there. And I think it is, this is introducing Go- Whoopi Goldberg. This is, Oprah was a successful talk show host, but she's not the Oprah that we know, right? No. Um, by any stretch of the imagination. And the Color Purple endures largely as a literary text, right? The movie has not overshadowed it for reasons that I both, I, I think, are understandable and enduring. Um, but, okay, so those, that's how we, we first encounter it. We're going to come back and talk a little bit about the book, its publication, and then get into the book itself. But uh, take a quick break first. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So The Color Purple comes out in 1982. Mm -hmm. It's um, not Alice Walker's first book. Alice Walker had been writing poetry. Uh, At an editor in Ms. Magazine, had written her debut novel was about her experience um, uh, working, well, from her days at the NAACP. She worked for the NAACP for a while, but largely about freedom writers. And then 1982, The Color Purple comes out, and it's a sensation. Um, She's the first black woman to win the Pulitzer Prize um, for for The Color Purple. She also wins the National Book Award for The Color Purple. Uh, Widely regarded hugely celebrated, becomes a hot film property right away. We'll talk about that. I'm trying not to race ahead to the the film stuff, but Mm -hmm. I want to capture here that it was a phenomenon right away. Um, Quincy Jones read it, got involved. Talking about Quincy's role in the movie is going to be fascinating here in a few minutes, but it was a thing in American culture, and especially, I want to say, among black artists in Intelligentsia. Um, We have a new voice and something that is broken through into the American mainstream. And this happens a couple of times over the last 50 years. Mention Roots. By the way, side note, I was doing my research to try to put Color Purple in some context in, in black books. The uh, Roots sold 15 million copies in hardcover in its first nine months in publication. I don't know how to contextualize that, Sharif. But that is wow. an enormous number that is hard to wrap your head around, almost as hard to wrap your head around. Native Son after being chosen by um a selection for the Book of the Month Club in 1940 selling a half a million copies in 3 months which is a largely white persons subscription service for books yeah. in 1940 which is even a more di- a radically more different racial thing so we ha- and then before that you're looking at the Harlem Renaissance right where mm-hmm. and that's only like 10 or 12 years before where there's a huge upswell of mainstream and let's be honest what I mean when I say mainstream I mean white people audience for black arts uh black letters especially so we get these punctuations i think what happens what's interesting about the color purple is it feels to me like the last one that feels like an aberration that we kind of go we go back to a higher baseline if that makes sense um and some of it has to do with movies some has to do with black music especially you know with hip hop and rap coming to be dominant, and then we get more black people in movies, and then more black stories get told again. Not nearly as many for a while as should be, and especially even now, but it was the last kind of singular text, which I think is uh, really interesting. Um, Alice Walker herself, I think uh, she's a complicated person now, and we'll mention this briefly. We're not going to dwell on it too much uh, here in a minute, but... This was at the time a commercial, critical, and artistic success that that's a little hard to to remember now. I think interesting to think about where it happens in you know high literary culture. We get the bluest eye, I think, in 1973 for Tony, mm-hmm. and then Beloved in '89. So he can kind of, I that's where I had it in my head is right between those. Like Beloved is the highest form of this, and then the bluest eye kind of got the ball rolling. But it feels to me that Color Purple really exists in that continuum as well. It's like more, it has it's a larger scope than The Bluest Eye, which is really centered on Pocola. And then Beloved has a much larger, grander artistic and historical vision. The Color Purple is very specific. Um, it feels very insular, right? Because this epistolary format. You're really in Silly's head yeah. uh, for most of it. And you get Nettie a little bit later. But it felt, feels very much of a piece of a kind. And it feels like Morrison's transcendence over the years has kind of overshadowed the color purple in some way, even though more people could, I guess on a Q rating said would recognize the color purple as a thing than any of Morrison's work. In a weird way, Morrison's total body work has now overshadowed the color purple, rightly or wrongly. Does that, does that sound right at all to you, Sharifa? What would you say about that?
0: Yeah, I would say that's true. I think the color purple was like this singular pop cultural force, as well as like a literary force. Um, And I think that there are probably broader audiences who recognize the color purple because of the film adaptation and just because Mm -hmm. it was so much. There were so many people, so many icons of black culture attached to that book, to that one specific book Yes, um, that I think. It just spread a lot more people's knowledge of the story, and even if they didn't watch the movie um or read the book their their just general knowledge of the story itself mm-hmm. was there it was present, so yeah, yeah, I would say present, it's yeah. it's got a pop culture element to it too,
1: yeah, that's and maybe maybe even more enduring in a pop culture way than anything Morrison has done or even Morrison herself, so there's this weird kind of really not and again it's not a competition really but when you think about in my own personal experience too how large morrison looms but then the color purple itself has kind of a higher peak um in awareness and then walker her her later of late let's just put it this way of late her comments and some of the stuff she said in public has been at the at the least bad um head scratching and at the worst part kind of disturbing Mm -hmm. um, about some books that she's recommended in public that are conspiracy theories, uh, anti-Semitic in some ways, but it's not quite that simple, but also like an L. Ron Hubbard, sort of there are lizard people that rule everything um, that she recommends in public and talks about reading. You can Google this stuff. We're not going to dwell on it here, but I think it goes into the pot of how Alice Walker is now... The Color Purple now is bigger than Alice Walker, and she doesn't have another book that people know. And I think I read some essays later. Um, she's also well-known for rehabilitating, resuscitating, rejuvenated the legacy of Zora Neale Hurston yeah. um, in Search of Our Mother's Gardens, um, famously in 1975. So I think though, really The Color Purple... And then the resuscitation of Hurston, and in a lot of ways, I think their eyes are watching God in a curricular way, has taken over the place that they may have been occupied by the color purple. It's not quite as explicit, Sharifa. I think it's just it's more high school friendly. Um, yeah. Than than the color purple is. So in a, there's you know there's not too many syllabus slots, and I think that's something that's that's happened over time, but. You know, it it was a huge phenomenon right away. It sold a lot of copies, very critically acclaimed. I guess in our reading of it, your first reading, and it might as well, it feels like it might as well have been my first reading, because I think it's been 25 years, to be honest with you. But what was it like to read The Color Purple?
0: It was really, I had forgotten how emotional, how heart-wrenching... And heartbreaking that story is but also Mm. I just was I found it really profound how much Alice Walker was able to fit of Celie's life and the life of this whole community of people who make up Celie's world how much of their lives she was able to fit into this story and how complex she was able to make their arcs yeah. they grew and developed in so many unexpected ways I, I kind of remembered as I mentioned a lot about um, Seely being this big important character for me but I had forgotten about how big and deep and wonderful this huge cast of characters was until I, I read the mm-hmm. book itself so I just found that it was definitely well worth the time. I'm really glad that I made it a priority for reasons of doing this podcast. And I was mm. hugely impacted by reading it as an adult.
1: We were talking a little bit on Friday as part of a different call about our experience of it. So we are starting to do the pod but without recording. And one of the things that we agreed or came <laughs> to, I think we found some consensus around is that it holds up and it feels contemporary still. I mean, it's historical fiction of the time and historical fiction can endure a little bit better because it's already looking backwards, right? So it doesn't feel, it's kind of like folk music. It doesn't ever feel of the time, but it's never sort of out of time. I think that's like a Bob Dylan quote. I might be paraphrasing (laughs) there. Sorry, Bobby. Um, But so for those of you who haven't read the the book that know the movie or just have a general, maybe hazy purple-hued sense of the cultural object that is the color purple... It's written, it's an epistolary novel, and to my mind, I think it might be the best one ever written, That at least that I've ever read. Let's put it that way. I haven't read them all, I'm sure. Um, but it's Seely, who's a 15-year-old child bride with, let's say, a complicated lineage, which we mm. kind of can't get into here because it's hard to trace, having, the, having children by who she thinks is her biological father at the time, and... Really, the inciting incident of the book is those children being taken from her, you know, one after the other. I think we start the present tense of the first entry is her second child being born, right, Sharifa? And then it, and then, and that's Olivia being taken away. Yeah, when
0: Olivia is taken away, and then we learn about Adam as well having been taken away. Um, And those scenes, like the original, the moment when we learn that, you know, Seely's kids are taken away. Those are like really short but powerful scenes of just like this is a huge moment in Celie's life that was horrible and carries through in the book in a really significant way.
1: And there's an experience of reading The Color Purple, especially the early chapters, that is kind of like reading Morrison and also, you know, in a telescopic way, like reading Faulkner, where you're not really sure what's happening. Yeah. You you know, Celie's Walker is writing Celie writing to herself. So she doesn't explain herself the details, right? She's not saying, well, this is what happened. She's going through it. And I think we learned that she started... Uh, do we believe that these are actually paper documents? I guess that was one of my big questions for you is like, is she actually writing these down on paper somewhere and putting them in a box? That's never clear to me. And the movie doesn't... The way the movie deals with the letters is something to talk about. But let's say it's not resolved there. I'm not really sure what's what we're supposed to be understanding about what these documents are. Are they in her head um, if they're in her head then why is the spelling different? I mean I know she's tr- Walker's trying to capture Cely's 15-year-old not without much education, but it's a little unclear to me like what the meta textual scene we're in here is. She finding time to write these. I don't know if it matters, but I was I was pretty interested by it. Do you have a sense of it for?
0: Yeah, you know what? I I always imagined or I imagined in this moment when I was reading the book that it was like a sort of almost nighttime prayer Seely was having. Yeah, so it wasn't, that's how it feels. Yeah, yeah, it was. I thought of it as in her head, and there's actually like a a sort of I don't think it's a speculative note about this upcoming newer adaptation that sort of emphasized that maybe I was correct in my reading of. Of mm-hmm. that, um, in that they're going to incorporate some elements of magical realism so that you can get into Celie's head in the way you do in the book itself. So I definitely thought of this as, especially when when Celie is recounting her younger years, because the thing about Celie is that there's so much she doesn't know. And there are some clever scenes in the in the 1985 adaptation where she's like learning a lot, like with reading and stuff. Yeah. It's a great
1: scene, actually. It was one of my favorite scenes in the movie.
0: I think anybody who loves language and, you know, words Mm -hmm. in general loves that scene. And so I think that because of Celie's understanding of the world and her ability to be able to write in the first place early on, I just sort of assumed that it was in her head.
1: Yeah. And it, and it kind of doesn't matter. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't have struck me until later in the book. So she and her sister get separated early, Nettie. And in my, I, I guess I kind of stepped over this earlier. My mental model of the book was, this was Suge and Celia's story. And I think it still is, mm-hmm. but it's not only that. And, and you were, you were not alluding, you were saying this as well about how actually the community and what Walker's able to do through the prism of Celia's journals and capturing, following, explaining, loving this community that has so many problems mm-hmm. and does such horrible things to each other and has such horrible things done to it is is really a wonder. But I didn't remember that really the central, in a lot of ways, the central trauma of many traumas in Celie's life, as she sees it, is being separated from Nettie. And not only being separated from her, but not knowing that she's gone or not knowing what happened to her. And then not knowing that for decades... Her forced, arranged husband has been keeping these letters, and she could have had these letters to sustain her throughout. Even more than the physical trauma she bears, that's the moment in the book where she almost takes a straight uh, razor to Albert. Like, that's the thing that does it, is the severing of this connection. Um, And again, there's a lot else that goes into it, but that's the inciting moment and those are presented as real letters right and we get those directly yeah so then it made me wonder okay then what does that say about the relationship of these other letters we're saying i think maybe it's an interesting unknown at this point like where where and if those things are happening in the real world outside of Seely's mind and what they're doing for him. Yeah, i think similarly the, the the feeling i had of reading especially the first half as you get into it, is how the book really blossoms out of the early chapters out of these very very difficult Terrible scenes, and how they show Celie working in the world and trying to connect with other people and having her own time connecting, and she herself doing some very difficult things um that are hurtful, and then both giving and receiving forgiveness over time in ways that are sometimes hard to believe emotionally or or hard to. I believe is the wrong word, but seem almost like superhuman. That's the kind of grace that some of the people give each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also feels very human at the same time. I, I was blown. I, I have to say I was overwhelmed at moments by it, and it was better than I remember. Um, and I don't know what that says about my memory, but that, that's my experience of it as well. You have some notes here um, in terms of how Walker came to this particular book. And I have some, some overlapping ones that could be um, – if you want to do further reading, we'll put links in the show notes. But Walker studied um, Africa herself and studied abroad in Africa. And we get some stories from Africa. Um, mm-hmm. Nettie becomes a, a missionary in Africa. And that comes in, too, where she's trying to connect pieces of the American trans-African experience and inheritance and loss and generations and things go into it. But then also she was, uh, Walker herself was... Talking to sharecroppers and writing poetry. And then she was seeing some of her own extended families in those stories and realized there weren't books like that. There just weren't these community based stories of the rural South, especially. We get some different ones in the Harlem Renaissance and Living Is Easy, Dorothy West, um, the best you know, the simple short story links in Huseman. in terms of these rural people, sharecroppers, um, there wasn't a depiction of how life was, and I think that's another thing. Especially the movie that also blew me away. The production design of the sense of place is incredible. Mm-hmm. The movie is incredibly gorgeous, and the production design is amazing, and the and the costuming and the the architecture and everything really was striking. And that's something that we hadn't really seen before. Um, Walker grew up in Eatonton, Georgia. Um, and then this was is supposed to also be set in Georgia, though filmed largely in, well, your neck of the words now, Sharifa. Yeah, North, North Carolina. Carolina. It looks like. So um, that's another striking thing about it, but the decision to use Sealy, this withdrawn, traumatized, I think it's fair to say broken thing at the beginning, Sharifa. Yeah. And the story of The Color Purple is the rehabilitation of Sealy, right? Is, is Is there a, that's not the worst way to think about it, is it?
0: I don't think it is. And I think, like, between the, you know, um, Celie either writing or thinking her notes to God aloud and then some of the interaction she has specifically with one scene between her and Sophie that I'm thinking about, like, there are some rehabilitation moments of, like, just dealing with how, who she addresses in her, we'll call them letters in her letters and who she's addressing those letters to and her relationship with the version of God she sees and how Mm. that is also a moment of her changing her perspective on, you know, this omniscient white male God with a, you know, white beard and everything's white. And then also there's this one moment with Sophie as well. um, Sophia, where she tells Harpo to beat her. And yeah. that was the the first moment I knew, you know, there, there were all sorts of terrible things happening that were inflicted upon Celie by other characters. But there are moments where we see that, you know, there are real negative impacts on Celie herself and how she handles her relationships with people And inflicts pain on people because it's all she knows, you know, and she thinks that's just the way of the world. And then, you know, being forgiven for that, even though it caused some real strife. I think that a rehabilitation story is a good way Mm -hmm. to look at that for numerous reasons.
1: Yeah, I think that's that moment is. I don't, I don't know, maybe the bottom of Celie's agency, right? When mm-hmm. she parrots what she's been told and seen into the world and makes it worse. And we see a lot of cases, like one of the criticisms of the book in when it was initially published, and, and it looks like maybe it's continued to this day, about, let's just call it, it's a tough look for black men on the whole yeah. in the color purple. Um, and, you know, I, I don't really feel qualified or interested in in. Getting on one side or the other of the argument, but I think if you read the book, you can see how black men aren't the focus of this, but inherited trauma, inherited cycles are on the table as well. You know, Mister learns stuff from his dad, and yeah. the other thing: this book starts in 1909, we're 44 years from slavery, right? We, I'm nowhere in this book. Let's put, it, I mean, I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> this is not my timeline, but like the, when we're reading this, the book is set like. These people's parents, Seeley's parents and grandparents, were slaves. Yeah. Or, or had aunts and uncles were slaves. So, this is a broken, not even broken, a captive, hostage, enslaved community. One and a half generations after emancipation, it makes sense that there are there's brokenness all around. Right? There, there's a certain sense of how could how could it be any different? Right? How how could it been There's no help here. Um, There's white people in this book, but they are, you know, distant forces. They're all powerful. And one character, Sophie, goes to jail for 12 years for just talking back to the mayor's wife. And the movie can't handle that. They make Sophie hit her, which I thought was an interesting choice. But in the book, if I'm remembering it right, she just talks back to her. And that's how huge, godlike a presence the white supremacists and individual white people were in this, and this whole black community is l- living under that, right? And that's how they see relationships and power and dominance to work, how social structure should be organized, or is at least organized. And it trickles all the way down to how you raise your kids and how they talk to their friends. Um, and so I think a systemic trauma is maybe a different way of understanding it, rather what individual people do, but that what under, individual people do here in relationship to it is fascinating and then i think walker positioning suge avery i was talking to michelle about this morning she had a vague memory of us she's like well how was it and what stuck out she was like the singular character or almost like i don't even know call it creation insight creative drive is suge becomes the locus of a lot of healing interestingly in the book mm-hmm. an outcast um a maybe prostitute, maybe not, certainly singing in juke joints when, you know, um, not participating in society as her parents would want, as her would-be suitors would want, other people want, but she's the person around with a lot of this reconstitution or reimagining how relationship could be happens, and that's about art, that's about relationship, and that's about freedom, and she's the nexus for all kinds of freedoms, whether it's sexual, whether it's attitudinal, monetary. Um, that was the thing that stuck out to me that shug is Suge is the fulcrum around which whatever happens in this book happens. What 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 do you make of the character of Suge Avery on your on your read as an adult, Shriva?
0: I think that my feelings about Suge Avery kind of encapsulate a lot of my feelings about this story is that I feel like there's a lot of radical thought that happens mm-hmm. in this book, and I think one of the striking things about Sugar Avery, as I read *The Color Purple* and fretted over these characters, worrying for their future, because <laughs> yeah. I couldn't remember how it yeah. all ended, which was terrifying. Yeah,
1: right. Me too. I couldn't either. That's a great. I I didn't realize that, but you're totally right. There was a plot anxiety um, Yeah, that I was feeling good good point
0: point. and one of the things that struck me as being especially radical is that a character like Suge Avery doesn't meet some sort of tragic end in this story mm. because she just lives her life in this in a way that's even freer than I could imagine like she just does not yeah. care about what anybody's thinking there are moments of course she's as as capable of vulnerability she's a human being she feels things and she hurts and and everything else but she's really committed to just being herself and living life by this philosophy that i thought was really beautiful that she talks about a little mm. i mean it's it's sort of the the reason the book is named the color purple when she's talking with Seely and just learning about her philosophy of life and just seeing how she lives in this world that is very much against her. She's a black yeah. queer woman and she has her own money. She's doing her own thing. And that she did not have to be, you know, martyred in this story. Yeah. Like that sort of made me in a way I I probably couldn't have before celebrate this character, Sugar Avery. Uh, in mm. the story, she was just probably, other than Celie, the most striking character in the book for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they're they're opposites. Right. Where at the beginning, Shug is. I don't. Well, at the beginning, we we, we she comes to the story in the back of a wagon. We're not really sure what disease she has. I, I can't tell. Do you yeah. have any. She has tuberculosis or something. It doesn't really matter. But she's brought low by some malady Mm -hmm. and nursed back to health largely by Seely. But we learn that Seely's husband um, Albert wanted to marry Suge. His father wouldn't allow it, and it's not really clear what that looks like. Maybe he wouldn't have inherited the farm or got money. His family looks like it comes from relatively speaking um, good condition, and a lot of a lot, if not all of Albert's. I don't know what behavior mm-hmm. comes out of not living the life he wanted to live. And that's another thing that revolves around Suge. And he comes to, frankly, some kind of understanding with Suge and Seely and Suge's later paramour Grady, that there's another way of being connected to people. Um, It doesn't have to be about ownership or exclusivity. And that not only is black sexuality and art and liberation not a threat, but also it's A way out, right? I mean, Mm Suge uses the very things people don't like about her to buy a giant home in Memphis and be independently wealthy and get with 19-year-olds later in the book (laughs) when she's feeling like that's what she wants to do. Uh, Go, Suge. And then, you know, one the the line to me that stuck out, and I'm sad it's not in the movie because I think to me it's a key, it was a key to my understanding of why I found it so moving, is Celia at one point says about Suge, she understands how to love somebody, and that line alone, mm. I think, made me realize that the characters in the book don't know how to love each other. They don't have models for it. They don't have agency do it. They're under such duress that the kinds of love that they would like to get and, and would like to give, frankly, they don't have model for, models for, and Suge gives it to them. It's without judgment. It's without ownership. Um, it's without, I guess those two, it's it's without violence. Um and without subjectivity to any as much as was possible moral or legal authority it existed out her her liberation existed outside of that now it's in marginal spaces of juke joints and brothels and um those kinds of places, but there's a crack there to find a way um to live in the world and once cely had to learn love learns how to love differently once Harpo does once Sophie does a lot of things start opening up um in ways that are that are pretty remarkable too. All right, um, we said the be- you said the best thing about Celie's the- voice. Yeah, I said shug. I think the actual epistolary form does it a lot of service. We don't know too much about Celie's thoughts, um, but we know enough. Like there's a there's an access yet um, wall between her and interior. so it doesn't suggest we get to know everything, but we know enough. and we get to see her learn and grow um, over time. Anything that didn't work for you or anything that you bumped on as you're reading this, Sharif? I see a couple notes here, and I'd like to hear about them.
0: Yeah. Um, I really did not have a lot of bad things to say about this book because it just struck me as this powerful force I was glad to mm-hmm. to be exposed to. Um And I think that it was just the knowledge of, you know, and this is sort of why it took me a long time to get to reading this book is because a lot of these sort of canonical books of of African-American fiction usually are trauma stories that are not easy to read. But, you know, you have to get through and it's just the knowledge that these things that are happening in this fictional world were our actual... Reality, Like, this is what Mm. the world looked like for African Americans of the time. And the complex, you know, dynamics that Alice Walker really gets into in this story, those that, you know, this was the community you had. And this is the community. This is how you survive is through your community. And so there are all sorts of ways you have to navigate that even though oppression can come from many places and just to you know that reminder was the hardest thing i would say i guess about reading this book
1: yeah i i think that's not an artistic flaw anything it's just makes it hard and and you're right i think that's kind of why the movie doesn't probably show up on cable right yeah not a you don't really want to spend time in the book I mean, as beautiful and as moving as it is. Um, it's not a rewatch kind of a situation. Generally speaking, I was thinking about that too. Of like, you know, the movies that come a little bit later, um, you know, Spielberg takes another crack at telling a story about black people and black um, slavery with Amistad, And it doesn't really work as well either. And it, it takes a while for things to get picked up. And I think that's why I want to move to talk about the movie a little bit because there's a lot of stuff that we could talk about there. Yeah. My only – I'm not sure. I guess it's more of not how it's not good. I wasn't sure exactly how to deal with how the back really third of the book is reading Nettie's letters and this whole mm. sub-story, the B-plot. Um, and I, I don't know if it's, I don't know how you can hear me struggle with it a little bit, Sharifah, like what to do with, we get a lot of that, a whole lot of it. Yes. And I, I don't, I don't have a great interpretive, um, handle on what to do with it. I think Walker is trying to expand Seeley's vision, right. And expand this. There's a whole experience of blackness. Um, and it's not just this one community. And I see we actually, I think, is buttressed by the idea that her sister is out in the world seeing big things, you know, in Africa, she says. My sister's in Africa. She kind of can't believe it. But then we get sort of very, very detailed descriptions of the Yoinkas' relationship to the British rulers and a road being built. And it feels like a diversion from what we have been expecting. And I'm not exactly sure how it pays off in the end, but... That's the one place where my my brain keeps trying to float back to to say what is going on with that and how does it connect with what's going on. So I don't know. Do you have it? Can you fix me, Sharifa? Did you have an interpretive model that I can steal from you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's helpful. I I think that as I was reading it, and especially as I was realizing that Ina you know, Walker herself had gone to Africa, in my mind I was just wondering if. This was just stuff that was front of mind for her or stuff she had Mm. never really gotten to write about in any sort of way and wanted Nettie to be an opportunity to do that. Because I know she had she'd Mm. done some activism as well around, um, you know, female mutilation in Africa, which is also discussed in the story and in the other books she expands that story. So it's not mm. like it was a sort of drop in the pan for her, the, the Africa part of the story and the characters um, continue on in the other books, which I have definitely never read as well. But
1: Yeah, me neither. Yeah. I, that's a great point that some of these stories continue. And I, I, I don't want to I actually found the the story, the idea of stories about black missionaries in Africa to be fascinating. It wasn't, they were interesting passages as well, but it was... And then, weirdly, uh, the most like sort of meta moment was Nettie Nettie's letter to Seeley, in which he was telling the story of other missionaries. It's like, whoa, oh, I'm yeah. really having some vertigo, <laughs> <laughs> some vertigo here about what's what's going on. Uh, but she was in, and so it wasn't it wasn't bad necessarily. It just it felt um, I feel a little more int- not interested. That's where my unknow my unknowing it is is drifting to at this took point. you
0: out of the story a little okay. bit.
1: I don't know. It's just like I, I kept, well, I think we were, I kept wanting to go back to Seeley's story. Like yeah. you said, I, what happens to Celie? What happens to Suge? And I would catch myself zipping ahead over the, I was like, okay, I, I get it. Um, there's stuff happening. It's interesting, but I want to get back to the people we've been following for 200 pages already. Um, so that's maybe more my problem than the text. All right, we're going to do another break and uh, wrestle with the movie. Um, like I said, this became a hot property. And it seems to me largely motivated, um, expedited by one Mr. Quincy Jones, who was in, in was interested in promoting Oprah's career, oh, interested in black arts in general, had been in, in the, mu- the movie and music business. I mean, if I have to tell you who Quincy Jones is, I, I don't know. I don't know how to help <laughs> you. But let's just say, if you don't, that he... It is a mover and shaker in in Hollywood and the recording industry, you know, going back to his days as a jazz trumpet player, um, all the way through really until very recently when he's an, he's an older guy now. But um, wanted this to happen. And he approached Spielberg, apparently, about making this movie. Mm-hmm. And Spielberg, I think to his credit, said, I don't know, man, you know, Spielberg's a blockbuster director. This is really his first non-Jaws you know, kind of Indiana Jones, E.T. movie. I, was like, I don't know if I don't, I don't know if I can handle this. Is, am I the right person to do this? And Quincy said something to him very interesting. I think it says something about the early 80s, which is you're the only one that can. Like, you're, you know, you, I can't get this made with anybody else, right? This is not a story that's going to get a big budget, that Hollywood producers aren't going to get behind. Um, I need to really attach this to someone like you to get the movie made in the way that should be made. Which is practicable, understandable, and both sad. I mean, that's ultimately sad. I mean, the thing people we look at this now and say, "Why doesn't a black act, a black director make this?" If you needed a big name director to make this movie to get the funding, you didn't have a place to go, really, Sharifa. You and I were talking about this a little bit before. There is no Spike Lee's coming a little bit late. He's got one independent movie in his belt, right? Mm-hmm. We're still six years from "Do the Right Thing." um we're 2 years from she's got to have it and there the this was the culture this is the cultural deficit um that's still taken us some while to to ref- we'd have better choices now with more choices and it wouldn't happen this way but that's that's how it happened and i think that overshadowed i think some of the movie itself was that spielberg was involved um and he, I don't know that he does it pretty well or not. It's it's hard to know. It feels a little bit like a museum piece to me that all the movie, I'm not sure what your experience is like it, but nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Let me get some of his back stuff out of the way before I get into it. Um, notably, it is tied for the record with most Academy Award nominations and not win one mm-hmm. with the turning point in 1977. 10 nominations, no victories, which, I mean, at, at some level you're like, boy, that, that seems real bad. And also like in the 80s stupidly and painfully, not all that surprising. I think the one category that was especially tough was both Margaret Avery and Oprah were nominated best supporting actress. And maybe this sometimes happens with movies like this They split the vote. If someone wants to vote for the color purple, 50 go to one and someone else ends up winning. Mm. Um, yeah, just, just a fascinating to see, um, what happened to screenplay. So Alice Walker was initially skeptical, as you might imagine, of Hollywood taking on the story. Um, She made an agreement where she'd get a first crack at the screenplay. She also saw E.T. and thought it was really good and thought that Spielberg portrayed E.T. as a person of color as being other, which I thought was an interesting and weird comment at the same time, which I don't think we need another two hours to unpack something um, like that. It did very well at the box office. Critical reviews were generally very strong. Um, Let's see. I mean, we could do do casting. I mean, you did some of the, why don't you why don't you lead with your interesting, what, what factoids do we want to bring in either as interesting of their own as possibly meaningful for how this thing was cast and, and brought into production?
0: I went down a whole IMDb rabbit hole because, yes. of course, when you have a big movie like this that has become very, you know, memorable in the history of filmmaking, they will always have a million trivia points. And I was specifically looking for this part because I was curious about why exactly it was decided to leave out some of the, you know, the actual sapphic uh, romance story between Seeley and Suge. And it does sound Mm. like Steven Spielberg uh, does consider it a mistake that he did not portray that relationship. Um, So I I just really wanted to know and to get down to the bottom of that. Like, was it because (laughs) it was cut out or like... Ended up on the editing room floor or um, but it was exactly what you would think it was. He he thought that it would alienate audiences, unfortunate. Um, But, yeah, there were other like just really interesting factoids. I was wondering about the casting of Suge specifically. I didn't know Mm -hmm. Margaret Avery too well. And it sounds like a few people had gone through were potentials like Tina Turner turned down the role. I did Mm. not realize that. I'm trying to imagine Tina Turner as Shug Avery, and she has. Yeah, it sounds like they went through, like,
1: famous black performers. Yes. uh, Black women performers and said, can we – who else? I saw Chaka Khan was on there, Patti LaBelle.
0: Chaka Khan could not – she didn't think she could do it, so she she decided. And, yeah,
1: it's so interesting now that I think the tables have turned where if if Colored Purple came out today as a book and got turned into a movie – the Jennifer Hudsons, the Beyonce's of the world would be beating the door down. Like, this would be the most hotly contested part to get, right? Because you don't have to carry the whole movie. You come in and you're just a fireball. Um yeah. You get the most interesting lines. You get through everything else. But they, you know, Chaka Khan said she was just nervous. She didn't know if she could do it and what would happen. I think it was reasonable in 1982. I, I think it's yeah. very, <laughs> very understandable to be nervous about it, right? um
0: yeah that's not yeah, a small that, character to portray that's a that's a tough one and
1: who knows what script you got as you said was there yep. were there was there a scene where they're holding mirrors up to Seely's underparts like they're in a book uh, yeah. like, uh what is happening right here exactly what is gonna what am i doing steve um help me understand i can understand that i i saw the same thing i found that comment of spielberg about his his biggest regret about is not Giving more screen time and explicitness to the romance, the sexual relationship between Celia and Shug. Maybe it's me, and what I my memory of the early '80s would be like. The scene they get, they are kissing and making out. Mm-hmm. I think that's all mainstream movies were gonna do in 1985. I just don't know where else you. I, I don't. I don't know if that is making an excuse or something, but like, for a big tentpole movie with giant stars that you want to be seen by hundreds of millions or tens of millions of people I don't know the world was ready and that's why books can be ahead of this stuff because it doesn't need a 100 million dollar budget and maybe that's a critique of Hollywood that's fine but i just don't see a world where some other directors like you know what we really need a lot more like explicit sex scenes between these two black women that's going to go great in 1985 again an indictment of the time um and i think one of the reasons there's meat on the bone for musical adaptations and other things to do because There's a different appetite now. You look at something like, I was thinking, the the thing in my mind as I was watching this was um, the Underground Railroad adaptation by, you know, adapted by Barry Jenkins, which gets Mm -hmm. the budget, the artistic freedom, the cultural moment in which topics and explicitness and depictions, either anticipatory or real, of having nervousness about what the audience, and let's be honest, we're talking about white people here. Is going to handle is just different, so he could do different things. Um, I don't know. It's it's hard to know how that would be. And also, this PG thirteen idea. If it's rated R, you know he's had some experience with PG thirteen Indiana Jones, right? These are giant movies, and this one, if it's rated R, it makes half them out half as much money. Yeah. And that's these are commercial products, so there's something to be said there. I think for me, in, in terms of the culture, this is the Whoopi and Oprah show, right? Is this is I think if there's like a a two sentence thing about the what the color purple meant as a movie it's that we got whoopi goldberg and oprah's in it yeah i think that's it um pretty much
0: yeah those are the two should we
1: talk about whoopi and oprah here what do you want to say about whoopi and oprah in this movie
0: i i had never i still can't remember another performance of oprah's i will say that i am not like i have not watched all of Oprah Winfrey's film catalog, mm. but I cannot remember one <laughs> as powerful as Oprah uh, in The Color Purple. and whoopie, She's great. She yeah. is
1: really great in the first half of the movie, especially.
0: She is amazing because that is also a character. Sophia is a really, she's a tough character and she's another larger-than-life personality and Oprah is such a different person in this role that I almost don't think of her as Oprah when I watch the movie. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I know it's her there, but as I was watching the movie, it sort of slipped away. She was this character. And that was like, that really told me something. And Oprah, I I learned also in my rabbit hole, she sort of ad-libbed that whole scene where they're at the dinner table, where she, you know, finally comes through out of this fog that was caused by this terrible incident she had with the mayor and his wife and i was kind of blown away with by that and also that oh op- mm. i mean that Whoopi goldberg i have always seen as a comedic actress that yeah. she could like this role her as celie is also completely outside of what i would expect from Whoopi goldberg because she's just, again, a completely different person as this character. <laughs> right. I think it just spoke to their ability to act um, in this movie. Yeah,
1: They're both about five years away from super, super stardom. Like Whoopi yeah. and Peak Whoopi is like, you know, live aid on stage with Robin Williams and doing sister act and, you know, stuff like that. And then Oprah, really in the late 80s, um... And then to the early '90s peak, Oprah is still a ways away. You know, I'm so used to. I'm like you. I'm like Whoopi now. It's has been for like 30 years. The mini dreadlocked John Lennon bespectacled version of Whoopi. Um, yeah, she is like a fairly safe. I mean, she's on The View for for God's sakes. I mean, what is safer, more mainstream position than that? But here, she's wonderful. Her comedy in these these mid '80s to late '80s is really transgressive. Um, she got cast off a comedy club stage, essentially. Um, apparently, yeah. turning Spielberg around by doing an impression of ET, um, being so pulled over weird. for a pot bust is how he. <laughs> such a I wish how? there was a YouTube video of this. Sharifa. I yeah,
0: saw ow, that and ow, I was I, like, I, "Do I need to fact check this? Because <laughs> that just sounds completely <laughs> unlikely and preposterous." Like, how does this? Which happen? almost
1: means it has to be true, right? Yeah. you can't you can't make that kind of stuff up. <laughs> um. So that, I guess the other note, and as we get, a, let's, maybe this, the big question mark for me is, and I, I read, I did a reread of the book before rewatching the movie. And I was like, I don't remember how they did Mr. Albert or Mr. Mm-hmm. Johnson. Or like, it's a little clearer how it's And Danny Glover plays um, Albert. And Danny Glover is not yet Danny Glover. Like he's still a few years away from Lethal Weapon. He'd come off supporting roles in Witness and, um oh, God. It's like a Western. I can't remember the name of it right now. It's a Lawrence Kasdan Western. It's pretty famous. Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Doesn't matter. <laughs> um But I think it's an impossible play. it's an impossible part to play. And Glover is too likable to play it. That's my kind of that's kind of where I'm coming down. That's I feel like a lot of what rubbed me the wrong way about the movie had to do with Albert. And some of it is I don't know it's playable um, in a way that I don't know. That's where I came. That, that was the only place where I'm like, is there somebody else they could have gotten? And maybe it's my own, you know, mid-40s affection for the post-Royal Tenenbaums, mm-hmm. Lethal Weapon, you know, congenial, funny, physically gifted. I mean, his best part's in Color Purple and he gets to be goofy weirdly, which is yeah. also tonally strange. That was the one. That was the only... Everything... Else, every, Margaret Avery's amazing. Um, the characters, you know, all of them up and down the line, there's just a murderer's row... Uh, of people who are great and Glover's the one like A I don't know how you do this and B I essentially don't know how you do if it's Danny Glover uh, am I on the right wavelength or how did you respond to Glover as as uh Mr. Albert here
0: I was shocked I you know like I mean not shocked shocked because I knew he was in it but I yeah. didn't picture when I was reading the book and not really thinking about the movie I didn't picture somebody like Danny Glover as Mr. or Albert, like I definitely pictured Albert as more of a, you know, uh, like you could see his weakness in his physicality. And like mm. Danny Glover, it does seem a little too, like, uh, yeah, he just doesn't fit that, that internal personality of Albert that I pictured. He seems a little bit too strong and too like leading yeah. man type character. So, that's right.
1: That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, Shug's big critique of Albert is he's too weak. right? He's too weak. I couldn't be with mm-hmm. him, even though I love him. And you look at Glover. He's got this wonderful smile. He's a big tall, handsome guy. There's one scene where he's looking around for his clothes without a shirt on and the dude is shredded. Yeah. And I'm like, that's not, that's not right. That's not right. Um, yeah, and he was I, definitely that's right. described as I think that uh, physicality short... is part of it, too. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. I get that as well. So
1: I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about what available black actors were working in 1983, 84, 85. You know, I'm not going to do it in a recasting position. But I think it also speaks to tonally the movie, at some points, is much more comedic and broad than the book ever yeah. is. And some of that's because you can see it. And I think it's a dramedy, right, in places where the book is not a dramedy. It's just not. And I think that's the one place where, and maybe it's Spielberg not knowing how tonally to handle it. Um, I think post-jail Sophie is a bit of a tough hang before she gets to that speech, where trying to depict a woman who is traumatized but not gone, I'm not sure what direction they gave Oprah, but it's very like, I don't know, she's kind of rocking to herself. They gave her some prosthetic eye damage. Just seemed a little too much, um, on the whole. But I will say I found it very moving. Still, Goldberg is great, Margaret Avery is great, um, the production sign is great, um, and and I enjoyed the movie. I think, I think it's a good movie, not a great movie. Sharifa, where do you come down on this sort of subjective classification?
0: I agree. I think overall, like, I I definitely felt there was, at the very least, a softening of the edges in the adaptation. Um, I did not want to relive some of the worst scenes or the most terrifying scenes of the story. But I felt like I could, it was was very obvious to me um, that a lot of that stuff was left out. And there was a bit more of a, you know happy-go-lucky spirit in places where I don't think it was really necessary. But there were also, I think that the moments that really saved the movie for me, um, of course the casting, but I think that the really emotionally charged moments of all of the moments in that movie the separation of Celie and Nettie yeah. was like a punch to the heart. Like there was no softening yes. there. That was like the hardest moment to watch for me or the hardest scene. So overall, I I felt like a, a lot of the impact of the book was lost in the retelling. Yeah. Um, mm. But there were some, you know, there were some really powerful scenes and there was some amazing acting and the cinematography, like you said, was really exceptional. Like I had I understand now why like the visual elements of that movie really stuck with me so many years Mm. after watching it the first time, because, you know, even some of the scenes from Africa, which were kind of throwaway, but. The like the visual elements of those scenes from Africa with Nettie, where she's recounting her story, were yeah. like they would have appealed to my childhood mind. Um,
1: yeah, the, there's a there's some I mean there's some stuff that Spielberg does that actually is additive. I think that scene where Net you know I'm I keep referring to him as Paul D because Danny Glover plays Paul D in Beloved, and it's oh yeah, of, <laughs> a homologous characters. No, when when Albert. Pushes, carries, forces Nettie off. That's one place where his physicality, the Mister Albert of the book, is not clear how that happened. They change that a little bit. I think Nettie more runs away than is forced away because she's about to be the subject of, frankly, serial rape over time, and she gets away from that. Um, But Glover's physicality there makes that possible. The Mister Albert of the book could not physically make Seeley and Nettie like get over the fence post, so to speak. But there's a couple places like the hand games. Between yeah. Nettie and Celia are a wonderful shorthand for their connection, right? It's That's one of those things that film does better. Um, you get them singing in their hand games. There's also a scene where they're talking. Um, Nettie has come to stay with Celia after Celia has been forced to go marry. The, the, the normal words don't apply. She's not really forced, and yet she she's forced. Her dad isn't. It is what it is. Yeah. But then Nettie comes to visit, and she's surviving by having Nettie around. And they're talking. And Spielberg is just shooting their shadows on the wall as they're talking uh, and yeah. playing the hand games and hugging. It's just a really beautiful, tender stuff. I'm like, oh, Spielberg, turns out, knows how to direct a movie if he gets a chance to, to do some. But then the hand games, too, and then at the end, they play the hand games. Apparently, Walker's least favorite part yeah. was the opening, right? Mm-hmm. You Did you see the same anecdote? Yes, I yeah, did. T- take it away from there.
0: What did she say? It was like Oklahoma. Is that what she compared? Oklahoma.
1: To? The 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 yeah. Oh, what a beautiful morning! I think is what she means. Yeah. That song from Oklahoma.
0: And it's so funny because I read that and I was like, oh, I kind of like, I kind of liked that moment for me. And of course, she did <laughs> right. see how audiences reacted to that moment and was like, mm-hmm. okay, fine. But she definitely—that's when I, I read that she sort of she thinks of the movie as being a very different thing than the book. So yeah. that was how she was able to accept it, even though she had her disagreements with how it was done. Mm-hmm. But that was funny to me.
1: And, yeah, and I think that very different thing is probably the right way to think about this. And the thing that's lost is related to form, and I think it's also related to what you, and, and I agree, is the, the central strength of the the book, which is the cultivation and articulation of Seeley's interior in the form of the letters. Mm-hmm. Hard to do in movie unless it's all going to be voiceover, right? We just lose the letters. Like, there's little snippets of voiceover, but it's not enough to replicate it. And so a lot of it is just having to look at Whoopi's eyes reacting to stuff. Mm -hmm. And she's very good at it. But you don't get the information density and complexity that you get from the letter. So it's much more silly, kind of looking out at the world more passively when in the book you see there's a lot going on she's thinking about god she's thinking about forgiveness she's thinking about pain she's thinking about how to exist um and how to get through it and what her own reactions to things are and that depth is gone and you know this is the most common critique of a movie coming out of a book is you lose depth and complexity um and that's it It just happens it's i don't know how you would have done it unless you get a whole bunch of voiceover which then read the book which is yeah it's very difficult to do
0: yeah, it's hard to say how that could have been done. I I am impressed that they were able to, you know, kind of squeeze some of that out through Whoopi Goldberg just being mm-hmm. a great actor in the movie, but you know, you do miss some of that. Every time they had a little snippet of the voiceover and Celie You know, addressing God, like I thought that there was going to be more and I was sort of anticipating it, um, maybe hopefully, but I truly Mm. don't think like this was in an audio book. We're not going to we're not going to get that experience. So they were doing the best they could with what they had.
1: Yeah. Yeah, voiceovers are notoriously difficult. They can be a real crutch in a movie to give a voiceover because like, if you are that good at making movies, why do you need the people to tell what's going on? Mm-hmm. But I think for this movie, the, the book is essentially a voiceover of letters, essentially. I mean, that's how we're presented with the information um, we're given as well. Let's see, other things I have on my list. Oh, in a real... I mean, it's bad enough that the movie's nominated for ten awards in one zero um the real gut punch is the the movie that swept the Oscars that year. Did you happen to see this? Sharifa?
0: I had to look it up. I had to look it up Yeah. Um,
1: out of Africa yeah, tough, very tough. A movie about white people in Africa sweeping <laughs> it, and I frankly, I like out of Africa, but um as a contrast as the one to sweep the awards with color purple on the board, was it the best movie of the year? Probably not. Were some of the acting awards deserving? Absolutely. Um, Interesting for Quincy Jones having written this score, seems largely forgettable to me. I I was listening for it while watching. It's like, oh, Quincy is going to do some stuff. But there's a couple of places in the movie where you get Suge performing or gospel Mm -hmm. singing in the church, which is great. And maybe he did that. Um, My least favorite addition, I think, is Suge coming to church with the juke joint band and asking for her father's acceptance. I thought it was cool in the book that she didn't need it. That's me. She need to go back to church and get a hug from her dad. Screw that guy or, you know, he can do what he want. I am who I am. I'm a married woman now where she's like plaintively looking at him with a wedding ring. I was like, that ain't Suge in the book. That was my biggest reaction, to be honest with you, sure. That that was my biggest nope, let's say. Let's put it that way.
0: I felt exactly the same way. I was like, why is this necessary? Like... Shug doesn't no. need to be saved, and I don't know why she's also, like, is the message at the end of that scene when she comes in and there's, like, the gospel battle sort of situation? Is it that, you know, her dad needs to be saved, the preacher needs to be saved? I just felt right. like it wasn't necessary, and I I love that that. I just love the pageantry of that moment, but that is about yes. it. Yes. Like, beyond the pageantry. It's very
1: Music Man. It's beautiful musical stuff. But, yeah. like, in this context, I'm very – and I think there's maybe an over – maybe the idea was to integrate the two sides of the community, the the real versus the imposed structure. I don't know. Also, after a Saturday night of carousing, there's no one at that juke joint on Sunday morning, Sharifa. What are those people <laughs> doing there on Sunday morning? Everyone's still – anyone who was there on Saturday is hungover or in church. What that are they doing? They look true. great for Sunday morning. that was a weird like what are they doing?
0: They what drink a lot of water. Right What's happening? Yeah. I
1: guess so. <laughs> very, very strange stuff there at the end. Um anything else from the movie we should say? Uh or from the whole thing. We we need to wrap up. We've been going for a while here.
0: Yeah, I I mean I didn't know I think we talked about this a little. We cheated a bit when we were talking about Mm -hmm. this whole um, episode a while ago, and I was coming at it with, like, I'm not sure also how I feel about the newer adaptation being a musical and, like, what what that's all going to look like, but I think I have to say I am actually excited about a musical adaptation of this movie. I'm also, like, I think that this adaptation paved the way for more adaptations by different people yes. and that the director mm-hmm. uh Blitz Bazalule is Ghanaian is really interesting to me also because I can't speak to how like Africa is represented in the book or the film. No
1: idea. Great point. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. So I'm curious about how that's going to to look and I'm excited that there's another adaptation that'll sort of take it to a new place and you know, do the thing of having a, a black director behind it.
1: No. Yeah. And you have a note here that they're going to be a little magical realist forward, which yeah. I I hadn't really thought about too much. But then I read the, the copy of the book I read. I did an ebook version. And the, the one you can get um, from most places that's um, distributed by Open Road is a 30th anniversary edition, I believe. And it has two introductions. There's Alice Walker's like 10-year introduction and then also the 30-year introduction. So it's kind of interesting to read those side by side. And her principal grievance or point or whatever she's trying to make there is how over time people have decentralized the spiritual, the spiritual journey of Sila, of like thinking of God as the white bearded, you know, kind of, you know, I'll call Methodist God that I grew up with, I'll say that, mm-hmm. to a more like almost Whitman-esque transcendental God is in the details, God is everywhere, it's everything, it's just being alive kind of stuff that happens at the end. And her insistence on that being the central message, because, you know, as we say, it's Um, In the movie, it's Whoopi and Oprah, and I think in the movie, it's black gay representation are the two or three kind of like big epistemological chunks that people take, and Alice Walker is saying like, don't forget the spirituality stuff, don't forget the spirituality Hmm. stuff, so that's interesting to see that brought forward too. I think also the musical form, also you get to have music, which is fun, but the, the, the kind of like I don't know. Artistic conceit of musicals is songs where people are just talking about what they're thinking and feelings in song. Oh, yeah. Which maybe is a way around, it's just kind of a way around that voiceover letter problem. Celie so can have a song that's to herself that's expressed in a way that's native to the genre without feeling weird or imported or, you know, compromised in some way. So I
0: hadn't thought of it, that. It opens
1: up some interesting opportunities as well. All right. That's a color purple. Um, An amazing, revolutionary, fraught, um, and enduring work. I I think we can say that for sure. Sharifa, thank you so much for joining me on this journey. Yeah. Um, And we'll, uh, we'll talk to you next time.